Well, good afternoon and welcome to Reason for Hope, a daily Bible answer program. We do it every day, weekdays, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, what is this? Uh, 5, 5 o'clock, p.m. Mountain, 5 o'clock Standard Mountain Standard Time. Yeah, we, we don't, don't do daylight savings time. We don't change so. <laughs> our clocks, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you can uh, chime in and ask your questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, how to apply a specific passage to your life, or how to un- understand or interpret specific scriptures or uh, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever it is that you're wrestling with or would like to get a little insight into. We would encourage you to join us online. There are many ways for you to do that. <clears throat> we live stream both to YouTube and Facebook. Each time we do the program, you can obviously follow us on Facebook. You can uh, please like our page as well as uh, share these uh, uh, broadcasts. Uh, but our Facebook handle is at CCF Tucson, and you can chime in there live. We have quite a few questions that pop in there, and we'll try to get to your questions one at a time as quickly as we can. Our YouTube channel is The Reason for Hope. Please subscribe and uh, hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. We also live stream our services and special events here. Um, <clears throat> our YouTube channel is at a reason for hope 546. Uh, please follow Scott Richards on Twitter. You can also ask questions there during this live program. You can actually uh, we'll we'll get to some of those questions. So be sure to follow Scott there, and his Twitter handle is Scott R4H. You can also watch us live on our website. That's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com, and if you click the Watch Live tab. You can actually watch our entire program, uh, all our services. You can even ask questions there. It's kind of a nifty little chat set, uh, area there that you can ask questions there as well. So really excited to have you all here today. How are you doing? I hope you had a nice weekend. And Yeah, it was awesome. It, just uh, an amazing amount of ministry. Uh, two just uh, wonderful uh, people. Uh, we celebrated their lives uh, on uh, Saturday and Sunday. Wayne Lewis who uh, was uh, just, this is a big old cowboy. You know, that's how you would describe him. Mm. But he had such a heart for kids. Uh, He was really involved with our children's ministry. Uh, It always felt like he had a call in his life uh, to be a pastor, but things never worked out. He Mm. made an attempt at it in a Baptist background, ended up over in our fellowship. But he really found his uh, sweet spot ministering to children he'd uh, minister to the uh, three and four year olds and they all called him poppy mm-hmm. which was the name that he uh, allowed his grandchildren to call him as well and and uh, the the auditorium was just absolutely packed uh with people uh remembering him one of the the neatest things about wayne's life that was shared was uh, and it was a piece of advice that he gave to his kids about having a work ethic and uh, his advice was, you should always conduct yourself on the job in such a way that if for whatever reason you're not there, they say, oh, no, you know, Wayne's not there. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the more moving things was uh, his son said uh, he never forgot that. And, and when his dad passed away, the first thing that went across his mind was, uh, oh, no, dad's not here anymore. What are we going to do? Uh, but uh, he said, we're going to carry on and we're going to trust Jesus because that's what dad would want us to do. And that was really beautiful. And then on Sunday, our uh, own Bo Willette, uh, our assistant pastor, his mom, uh, Dot, uh, passed away, and we celebrated her life as well. And there were just some really beautiful things uh, shared about her life 
and uh, the struggle that she had with uh, cancer. Wayne also died of cancer, mm-hmm. brain tumors, but Dot died of a form of bone cancer, which was incredibly painful. It was an incredibly harrowing experience for about eight months. Uh, even the hospice people couldn't really do much of anything to touch her pain or to manage it. And uh, the, the, the word that kept coming up uh, in the tributes to Dot uh, was the word courage. Um, you know, how she kept her eyes on her, on her Lord, on her faith. Uh, you know, our, our own Bo Willette, uh, just amazing testimony of uh, the love of God in action. He'd finish his responsibilities here at the church and then uh, go over and spend most of the night uh, mm. with his mom playing the guitar for her, reading her psalms and praying with her and uh, supporting her and uh, her, his uh, stepdad, Dave, as they were going through all of this. And uh, just really an incredible picture of God's love in action. And you know, one of the things we shared at the memorial was that uh, you know the question comes up, well, why did she have to suffer so long? Why didn't God just take her out? And that question got asked a lot mm-hmm. in that process, especially when the pain became absolutely excruciating for her. But uh, you know, the hindsight being 2020, one of the things that you see is the incredible impact that her bearing up under such suffering and such pain and maintaining her faith and giving, uh, say, Bo and his brother JP and, and her husband Dave and uh, her friends like Bart and Georgia Goodwin and and uh, and others, uh, just the opportunity to be able to come alongside and demonstrate uh, the love of Jesus and be able to, you know, really see a horrendous set of circumstances through the eyes of faith. Uh, you know, I just can't help but, but think that when that burden of pain and suffering was released and she was home uh, face-to-face with her Lord, looking back on it all, uh, seeing the impact that that made, I don't think uh, Dot would have had it any other way. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it's, it's just tough stuff. But, you know, the other theme of all of that is that uh, there are those who say that being a Christian is dodging reality or, or you know, for people that are escapists and, and don't really deal with the tough issues of life. I don't know where that uh, got started, but uh, in my experience as a a believer, that certainly has not been the case, and that was certainly not the case uh, in uh, Dot's homegoing uh, and uh, the the incredible life lessons that were learned as a result of that. So just an amazing time of ministry, and uh, this time of year, (laughs) it's just amazing how uh, many people are really struggling. Um, You know, we're still in kind of the aftermath of all the COVID craziness and isolation and people mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to do relationships again and some people afraid of coming down uh, with COVID or the flu and and trying to sort through all of that. Uh, people just going through uh, amazing uh, challenges in their relationships and mm-hmm. boy I'll tell you my wife Pam and I and I'm sure it was probably true for you Sean as well uh, we were just praying for people left and right uh, yesterday it was just mm-hmm. an amazing move of God's spirit amazing uh, picture of, of the comfort that uh, he can bring to people in the midst of all of this. So uh, amazing stuff going on. It was a powerful weekend. Hmm. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, for those who <clears throat> lost loved ones during the pandemic, weren't even allowed to see them. That was tough. I had the, my mentor and the gentleman who baptized me, uh, his family couldn't even go see him while he was sick because he was actually sick with COVID. So it was you know somewhat understandable, but uh 
you know, the whole household had it, so why can't they go see and Yeah, there's it's not a lot of logic to it. Uh, but, you know, people aren't really looking for logic in these sets of circumstances. You know, it was just amazing watching, uh, say, my wife Pam minister to so many people. Hmm. And uh, when I wasn't praying for people, she was praying for people. And, and it just got contagious. There were a lot of people uh, praying uh, and kind of picking up that cue and praying for each other. So uh, if you need prayer, let us know on the program here today. We'll be happy to, to pray for you as, long, as well as answer your questions. Speaking of prayer, why don't we uh, do that right now before we take uh, your questions here online? Okay, let's do that. Father, I thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you today. And I thank you in a world where there are so many people asking so many tough questions, not just uh, intellectual questions, but questions of the heart, mm -hmm. uh, wondering if there's any hope in this world. Uh, I pray that uh, the name of this program, A Reason for Hope, uh, would be fulfilled here today, that uh, mm -hmm. our mission to show that uh, believing in you and trusting in you not only gives us hope, but it's a hope that is found on a rock-solid foundation of the fact of what you've done for us in history, sending your son Jesus to live a perfect life, die on a cruel Roman cross for our sins, and rise from the dead so that we can know that we're reconciled to you and that you really love us. I pray that there are any on the outside looking in at that relationship, you draw them in during the program. I pray for those who know you, that you'd strengthen them and encourage them to uh, be your witnesses and, and to, to be an, a source of encouragement in these challenging times. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to explore your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And by the way, I forgot to mention, you can also, we have an app, uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship Tucson app, so I'd encourage you to check that out. And if you can't watch us online live or perhaps you don't want to maybe ask a question, uh, we have an email address. You can send your questions in, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Just want to let you know about that. Uh, we have a uh, prophecy update. We hear a lot of questions these days about um, the end times and how do we know and are we in the end times? And we've you know, wrestled with lots of crazy speculations over the years, but uh, there's still, it's a very valid question to ask, and are there uh, biblical well, it, markers? It, it's, a, it's a question that's on the hearts uh, of a lot of people. Uh, as you know, on Mondays, we uh, come off the weekend, we've got like a lot of stuff uh, loaded up as far as prophecy updates and things along this line. Fascinating article that ran, believe it or not, in the Jerusalem Post, of all things, uh, with this uh, catchy headline, Are the End Times Upon Us? Nearly half of all surveyed think so, according to a Pew poll. Uh, with crises mounting, 47% of U.S. adults think that the end times are here, though whether Jesus will return in their lifetime is still debated. Uh, four in 10 adults, according to the survey, believe that we are living in the end times. Some of the things that motivate that are the coronavirus pandemic and catastrophes and anxieties. Uh, causing someone to ascribe a religious meaning to it all, according to a new Pew Research Center survey. Uh, again, the end times described in this article include the second coming of Jesus, the rapture, and the last judgment. Uh, the debate, however, is between whether the end times begin, uh, whether the end times begin and Jesus returns during a low point for humanity as global crises mount, or a high point where the world is improved. Overall, uh, the point of view that things are going to get worse before they get better, uh, the highfalutin term for it is premillennialism, uh, is far common in the U.S. than postmillennialism, the idea that uh, every day in every way things are going to get better and 
we're going to clean up planet Earth and we'll hand it back to Jesus. So uh, asking, are we living in the last days? Uh, evangelicals uh, believe that uh, 63%. Black Protestants believe that even more fervently, 76%. By contrast, uh, most Catholics at 70% and mainstream Protestants at 65% do not believe that we are in the last days and the end times, which I think is an interesting statistic. Uh, overall, black Americans are far more likely to believe that we are living in the last days uh, compared to other groups at 68%. Uh, again, overall, 55% of U.S. adults think that Jesus will return to earth at some point. Uh, evangelicals believe that 92% black Protestants at 86% uh, believe that. However, this is the interesting uh, disconnect here. Uh, only one in 10 Americans think the second coming will happen in their lifetime. So, uh, you know, again, there are some people uh, that will say, well, we've heard this sort of thing again. But uh, the article uh, ends with a really interesting paragraph. It said, one person who weighed in on this was none other than Pope Francis I. Back in 2021, the Pope spoke to Italian writer and chaplain Marco Poazza and warned that just as God in the Bible unleashed a massive flood for 40 days and 40 nights to a desire to cleanse the earth, he could do very well so again. Well, we know that's not true because God gave the rainbow as a sign. He wouldn't do that again. But this is the last line, and this is from the Jerusalem Post, a Jewish writer. Just as the biblical flood was sparked by mankind's apathy and sinful nature, so too with this new flood, specifically due to man's sinfulness and apathy towards the planet, led to the ongoing climate change crisis. But the biblical flood was no end times scenario. Whether this has any bearing on the current series of crises ravaging the earth is unknown. So I think it's really interesting that uh, the Pope told this uh, writer that uh, maybe there's another Noah's flood coming our way. Uh, I think it's interesting that the writer in the Jerusalem Post wonders if there's some correlation between the times of Noah and the times that we're living in today. So all, all of this together, uh, Sean, why do we take the position that we are living in the last end days and last, you know, uh, again, the pandemic, uh, economic collapse, wars and rumors of wars, you know, those things have been going on for centuries and centuries. Why, what would make the time we're living in any different? Israel. Will you care to elaborate? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, when it comes to every generation before us, and I mean generation in the very broad sense, there has been this obvious variety of worldviews. We have a book here that we reference often. It's called Dispensationalism Before Darby. And uh, what's interesting about it, I'll reach down in a moment, but what's interesting about it is it does a very good job at giving each worldview, as far as it's been documented, uh, on the end times throughout church history of people who've looked at the book of Revelation, as well as the Old Testament and the prophecies scattered therein, as well as Jesus' overview of the signs of the times that we're to look for as the day of his return is drawing near. And when it comes to all the worldviews and positions that Christians have about the end times, what's essentially been the slice in the cheese, so to speak, has been on one side you have those who dismiss the concept entirely, whether out of apathy or willful ignorance. The uh, issue that a lot of people take with it is that when 
obviously false teachers get a hold of these things, they tend to gain large followings very fast. They see that as bad fruit. But there's also groups of people who go, well, it just seems like so many of the things that are talked about plainly in Scripture aren't happening and won't happen, aren't likely to happen, we'd rather say with uh, some chagrin, uh, not withheld, and say, this has to be symbolic, therefore I can't take this as something relevant to my walk with God. It's just too up in the air. Those on the other side of the block are obviously going to look at Scripture and say, well, given the rate in which God was able to not only fulfill prophecies in his first coming, but the word-for-word fulfillments of them, the significance of that and how it's been fulfilled in the past gave people an expectation of the future to say, if he fulfilled it literally then, then until further information gives me, both within Scripture as well as in reality, uh, to take this symbolically, I'm going to assume that it is literal. Now, among those views, of course, there's differences about the timing of the rapture, and we're going to be discussing that on Wednesday here this week. But the real kicker for most people has been, well, if God promised to not only do all of these amazing things to the people of Israel and through the people of Israel, Israel's not in their land, at least as far as a national identity, as far as national borders, as far as a proper Jewish homeland. There has always been inhabitants in Jewish territories, granted, but under either the uh, oppressive second-class citizenship of Dimitude during the time of the Muslim conquest of that area, either during the Diaspora after the Roman legion sacked Jerusalem and basically treated the Jews as insurrectionists rather than as citizens or a protected recognized class that they have enjoyed since the time of the Hellenistic Empire and all that they went through for that, they were seen, as Scripture stated, a curse and a byword. A wandering Jew was how they were referred to all the way from 70 AD until 1948 in the Common Era. Now, that is what gives people like my father and myself and those who share our views about prophecy uh, more reason to raise our eyebrows than most. Because when it comes to the state of Israel, people would look at what was, say, for instance, summarized for us in Ezekiel 37 and noting this revitalization of not only the land but of its people in this gradual process, starting with the bones and then to sinews, and then going on to explain, these are my people. People would look at that without the benefit of hindsight, without the reason to take this literally, and say, well, I just, is that the church? Is that the uh, presence of the Jewish people gradually coming more and more into the fold of Christianity? Because I just, I don't see Israel applying literally in this case. Well, we saw that after the horrors of the Holocaust in World War II, when Israel was internationally recognized as a state once again, prophecy experts and people who studied the field known as eschatology were just slapping their foreheads and going, I could have had a V8. This is literally being fulfilled right in front of us right? and continues to be fulfilled because not only a day after Israel was founded as a nation, they were bombarded with invasions from every Muslim nation whose charter and constitutions and you know government systems are all based around the annihilation of the Jewish people and the preservation of Muslim lands. What happened? They failed 
to take a piece of land comparable to New Jersey in the United States. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. they tried again in 1967. They've tried in intifadas. They've tried in internationally. 1973, they almost pulled it off. Yeah, yeah, and we saw again and again and again, something is happening with this small piece of real estate in the three corners of the continent. So when we're, and I'm referring to Africa, Europe, and Asia, by the way, that little piece of land that passes in between them. We have to take into consideration the fact that when we are seeing prophecy fulfilled, or when we, and this is also key, have seen prophecy fulfilled, none has given us more reason to say God's keeping up that trend, so to speak, than the biggest player in the end times, and that being the literal Jewish people, the literal land of Israel. Now note, there are still things that have to be fulfilled. There needs to be a temple for the abomination of desolation to take place. Right. There needs to be this status of Israel not only accepting a peace treaty, but even willing to touch with a 10-foot pole anything that the European Union or international authorities would have to say to them, and quite frankly, we don't blame them. But when it comes to the stage being set, what we have to work with is what we have. And what we have is the existence of a nation that for the last 2,000 years had no international identity until one day it not only showed up, but it stayed there despite all reasons to think contrary. Now, there is, of course, a lot of presuppositions, whether Christian groups, and I say Christian in quotations, uh, come to the Bible with the presupposition of anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people. They would dismiss their role as relevant and still hold to the handling of the end times that would say, well, this has to be symbolic of the church or all millennial, saying that uh, there is no actual fulfillment of these things, that Jesus it's is just going spiritual. Yeah, yeah, Jesus is just going to kind of, you know, come back at in some way, and we don't really know. When it comes to our understanding of Scripture, and again, those who would, we would consider brothers are those who would at least acknowledge that God made a promise to the Jewish people and that he plans to keep it. In the book of Jeremiah, I believe it's chapter 33, where he notes the covenant with day, yeah. night. If you got the sun rising in the morning, then you know that the Jews are still going to be my people. That from Deuteronomy 7 all the way to Revelation 21, we have a decided purpose for the Jewish people that is yet remaining unfulfilled. Yeah. And if God doesn't keep that promise, then we are judging the integrity of our salvation on someone who can change their mind. And that's not comforting. But since we want to take a consistent approach to Scripture, and since we're looking at history in such a way, we realize no wonder they didn't have as much to work with. They were looking at prophecy in the way that we would about the significance of, say, the Antichrist political structure today, as they would back then when they didn't have a literal nation of Israel. How can we take this literally? We don't have enough reason to say that God would restore his people, let alone be using them literally in this sense and in this time. There have always been a remnant. There have always been people with differing views on the secondary issues. But if there has ever been a reason to consider, this is when God is starting to uh, turn the wheel on the jack-in-the-box, so to speak, if you catch the, the eerie uh, anticipation. It was when Israel became a internationally recognized land once again, and the Jewish people retained an identity with a flag behind them. Now, no, Jews have always been there. And the dismissal on a lot of these groups, well-intended though they may be, it was to say, well, you have the kibbutzes and you have the Zionist movement mm. buying up land legally and 
fairly from the Ottomans in the late 1800s. Why would you say that this is prophetically significant? And once again, I default to not the circumstances or the semantics of how they became a nation. I'm simply recognizing that God described a process of restoration for the Jews, and it's a little too close to the bar for mm-hmm. the newspaper, not reading into it, but reading out of it. Yeah, and the fact that they became a nation. And, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, you just run down three chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 speaks about the land being restored and becoming fruitful after being a desolation for centuries. Yeah. Uh, then in Ezekiel 37, we see the famous uh, prophecy, the Valley of Dry Bones, how these this these skeletal remains god asks ezekiel can these bones live again he goes, lord you know and suddenly here's this clacking and clattering and these skeletons stand up and uh, then uh, then sinew and muscle and then skin comes on them they have no breath in them and then uh, god asks him can these uh, people live again and he says again lord you know and uh, god breathes the the breath of god comes into them and they come alive and god says this is my people israel now there's a physical restoration and then there's a spiritual restoration to god prophesied there then you get in ezekiel 38 and 39 that speaks of israel being invaded by its enemies in the last days uh and in order for that invasion to take place and these prophecies to happen we can explore them specifically if you'd like israel had to have been abandoned, had to have been uh, a desolation. Its people had to have been brought back and brought back in a way that they had something that was so valuable. It would motivate uh, this kind of an invasion. And, uh, you know, again, Israel being back in the land, there were those who would say, well, you know, again, it's valuable historically and spiritually. But really, you know, aside from being the you know, fourth largest exporter of fruit to the world, which is another fulfillment of prophecy, uh, you know, what, what do they really have going for them? Well, now we've discovered that right off the coast of Israel, although Israel doesn't have any oil, any petroleum, uh, the fascinating thing is uh, they've got these huge tracts of natural gas. Uh, in fact, uh, two of them, one named Tamar and the other named Leviathan, have enough natural gas to meet all of Israel's energy needs for the next 250 years and would make them an incredibly uh, valuable exporter of natural gas, especially to Europe that is literally dying uh, for energy exports now that things with Russia have fallen apart. Hmm. How interesting that a Russian-led invasion of Israel in the last days is predicted hmm. in that passage. And uh, that seems to be the bone of contention. So we're seeing all these things coming together. I don't believe that it's coincidence at all. As a matter of fact, uh, Chuck Missler, the famous Bible uh, scholar, uh, former board member at TRW, part of the one who established the uh, U.S. Navy Missile Command, uh, was famous in saying that coincidence is not a kosher word. <laughs> it doesn't exist in God's vocabulary. So for those reasons, uh, we take the position that uh, we are living in the last days and the end times. Now, the other part of this that I, I want to mention before we move on and get into our questions uh, is really fascinating that although uh, overall in the United States, 47% of people, um, Christian, non-Christian, you name it, believe that we're living in the last days and the end times, only 10%, and that includes the overwhelming amount of the evangelicals believe Jesus is coming back, the 68% who believe they will 
he may come back uh, in their lifetime. You put it all together, and only 10% of the population think that Jesus is coming back in their lifetime. Hmm. And I think that's prophetically <clears throat> significant for this reason. We're going to be talking about this passage uh, on Wednesday night, but in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that this day should overtake you as a thief. So uh, that uh, theme in Scripture, and Second Peter chapter 3 also uh, pounds away at this theme, that uh, people are going to say, where is the sign of his coming? All things continue since the first day of creation, kind of that uniformitarianism sort of thing. Uh, God doesn't intervene in the world. Uh, you guys are crazy. Uh, well, the Bible says that that's predictable, that uh, when Jesus comes for his people at the event called the rapture, it's going to catch 90%, according to this poll, completely off guard because they're not looking for him. So my advice to you is don't be part of that 90%. Yeah. He's coming back, and uh, you know it's the old uh, uh, bumper sticker theology we used to have in the Jesus movement. You can get right or you can get left. Hmm. You know, you is need there, to get right with the Lord before he returns. Is there a, <clears throat> using your analogy of the jack-in-the-box, is there, isn't the rebuilding of the temple supposed to be like the next step as a telltale sign of that we're in a tribulation period, or is that no, necessarily... Um, before or during? We know that for certain at the halfway point of the tribulation, the temple will be defiled. Something has to be there for it to be defiled. It is possible that the Antichrist peace treaty could be the permitting of the building of the temple. That's the position of the famous Left Behind novels. It is possible the temple could be built before the rapture, and it is possible the temple could be built a long time before the rapture. Mm -hmm. But it is another necessary component. Mm -hmm. The reason why we just encourage that not to hands off, you know, it'll it'll pan out in the end, end times isn't my field, is to say because Israel literally was fulfilled, we have reason to also believe there will be a literal temple, there will be a literal wrath of God demonstrated on the earth, there will be a literal antichrist. Because the abomination of desolation has to go in and defile the temple, there has to be a temple. <laughs> yeah, and of course, uh, when Daniel first coined that phrase, and then Matthew again referenced it, citing his Lord, mm -hmm. um, that had happened what, 300 years before Matthew penned those words? So yep. it's obviously still speaking of something in the future. Now, again, we aren't in an echo chamber, and we don't try to cultivate one either. Uh, those of the preterist view, those who would just either hold off, symbolize, or say that those were all fulfilled in the past, would say definitively that the abomination was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And they would reference sources like Flavius Josephus and the Antiquities of the Jews as a commentary on Revelation, I'll let that hang out for another moment so you can see what's wrong with that, in order to say, well, that's obviously how this was fulfilled. We do not share that worldview. We make the point of emphasis that when it's abominable, it's going to not only be described that way, much like Josephus and the uh, Maccabees, but it's going to make it pale in comparison. Mm. It's the day of the Lord. <clears throat> yeah. And someone was asking on Facebook, uh, what's the other views? Yes. There's uh, uh, pre, post, and trib, but they were talking about the rapture. But in when it comes to the millennium, there's the what 
what I have found is that the post-millennials tend to be the ones that deny, uh, that tend to have the more preterist views yeah. and tend to deny the existence of a rapture, that that's just a... Yeah, yeah, there's three basic... Uh, the, the word millennial refers to the... Uh, the, the word means a thousand. You've heard of millennials, that the people that were born around the year 2000, uh, and that's where you get that term. But the word thousand refers to the predicted thousand-year reign of Christ that we see described in Revelation chapter 20. Satan's bound for a thousand years. Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years, we are told. Now, there's three ways that people look at that. There are those that look at uh, this as uh, as the coming of Jesus as being pre-millennial. And, and we've mentioned that, that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. It's going to culminate in the tribulation period, literal hell on earth, the Antichrist uh, ruling and reigning for a time until Jesus comes and basically um, rescues man from destroying himself, the Battle of Armageddon. In other words, we're, yeah. the church today exists pre that millennial reign. We're not there yet. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, well, we'll detail and, this and, and things are going to get worse. Mm-hmm. The idea of post-millennialism is the idea that, uh, well, um, we are going to make the world better and better and better, and we're going to make it so much better, we're going to get everybody converted and then hand the world over to Jesus, and he's going to say, thank you very much, uh, I'll take it from here. That we're living in the millennium and that the new heavens and the new earth will essentially be whenever God mm-hmm. decides just to stop us at any time. Yeah, and, and that really kind of gets into the other point of view called amillennialism, mm-hmm. That states that, well, um, you know, we're really not even sure there's going to be a literal reign of Christ. Uh, you know, we think that all of these, we may be living in the the, the kingdom right now. Uh, and uh, all of the promises that God gave to Israel, like in Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 13 and so on, uh, these things are not going to be fulfilled. Literally, they're spiritualized and given to the church. Well, you know, if we're already living in the kingdom. I want my money back. This is definitely... <laughs> this is an Isaiah 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 the glories of the kingdom and what we're experiencing right now are two different things. But, uh, you know, all millennialists will, will tend to spiritualize a lot of the promises God made to Israel. A lot of the passages in the book of Revelation that speak directly to Israel and using uh, the Jewish people in the last times will say, well, that's just... Uh, you know, fancy talk for the church, you know, because we know God cares about us. And, and amillennialism, quite frankly, I wouldn't say all, all millennials are coming from this place, but a lot of its roots were in anti-Semitism and mm-hmm. trying to explain why, by and large, the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. A, a quick read of uh, Romans 9 through 11. In fact, if you want to see our uh, Oasis service uh, series we're going through, what you need to know about the uh, last days. We spent the entire message last Wednesday night talking about uh, Romans chapters 9 through 11 and what God's plans are, quite literally, uh, for the Jewish people in an inescapable way. Paul didn't say, oh, well, it's all been spiritualized. Don't worry about it. Uh, no. He said that God still has a plan for the Jews. If he didn't have a plan for the Jews, how in the world did he get saved? Uh, you know, that God has given the Jews a righteousness available to them, same way he's given it to us. It's a question of, are you going to try to put your faith in good works? Are you going to try to put your faith in what God has done for you? And then finally, he says that God has always had a righteous remnant of the Jews. He hasn't rejected them entirely. Down through time, there's always been 
a faithful uh, group of the Jews. And we talked a little bit about um, uh, Joel Rosenberg's All Israel News site running a, uh, a study done by Lifeway Organization that now places the amount of Jews who accept Jesus as the Messiah at over 1 million out of a Jewish population of 16 million or so in this world. So not a huge amount, you know, about 7%, but a significant remnant. God has always had a significant remnant of both Jews and Gentiles who actually know him. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of millennialism, uh, you know, amillennialism, the idea that God is finished with the Jewish people, uh, just to me, it's kind of a non-starter uh, because of what Romans 9 through 11 says. And if you want to uh, explore that, you, you certainly can. Yeah, you can watch the services on all these platforms. We live stream not only this uh, daily broadcast, but also our services to all the same places so you can chime in and listen in. It's a, it's a great uh, time of teaching. Well, uh, thank you so much for the update on that question, and uh, uh, we should keep our eyes on uh, not only in the On the word, skies, but, uh, man. The skies. <laughs> you know, I think of that uh, every knee shall bow, and we will see. It's just uh, pretty remarkable when you think about it, and you can only imagine, but I remember watching all those Left Behind movies, the original ones, not not the new ones, but the you know the the ones that were made like in the seventies. Oh yeah, Thief in the Night. <laughs> yeah, those were where, where the the uh, lady comes in and finds her husband's razor buzzing in the sink. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I watched all those. Uh, kind of Twilight Zoney. <laughs> but uh, Torbeth wants to know what does it really mean to wait on God, and uh, a, a parenthesis to that question was, um, what if I is it possible for me to miss out on God's plan for my life or does God just have it all set in stone? And if me being uh, sort of taking advantage of opportunities or just waiting and being passive, can I miss out? Or has God got a, everything set in stone and and I don't have to worry about it? Well, let me take the waiting on the Lord thing. You know, Torbeth, uh, if you want a uh, kind of an owner's manual, for lack of a better term, what it means to wait on the Lord, uh, can I encourage you to read through Psalm 27? That's what waiting on the Lord uh, is all about. Two great passages on waiting on the Lord. Psalm 27, Isaiah 40 speaks to this as well. But uh, waiting on the Lord doesn't mean adopting sort of this sort of passive, uh, well, you know, if God, uh, you know, wants me to, uh, you know, pay my bills, then I'm sure, you know, a sack of money is going to fall out of heaven or something like that. You know, people will say, oh, you know, I'm just waiting on the Lord. And it, it implies kind of a passivity as a, an expression of faith. Like, I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to wait around for God to do something. Waiting is emphasized rather than the Lord. Yeah. But uh, in Psalm 27, I think we get some real clarification on this. Uh, King David uh, wrote these words, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. 
Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, waiting on the Lord by this definition doesn't mean that there's some kind of peaceful, get-out-of-jail-free card sort of life that you can have. Uh, What it means is even in the midst of some of the most challenging circumstances in life, David describes these enemies, you know, breathing out violence and, and, uh, you know, again, uh, telling, uh, bearing false witness against him, uh, getting to the point where he would have despaired unless he believed he would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And that's what it sets up this line. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage. You see, there's good courage and not so good courage. If our courage is based upon my confidence and my ability to work things out in my own strength, that's not good courage. But like God said to Joshua, you know, be strong, be of good courage by not commanded you. The Lord is with you wherever you go. That's good courage. Uh, I guess maybe the, the best way to describe that good courage, which is uh, part and parcel of waiting on the Lord, is uh, when I was a little kid, I, I discovered like those, uh, those black and white monster movies uh, they used to have, uh, you know, on over-the-air television. We only had like six channels. But uh, they'd have things like Thriller and Chiller and Creeper and, uh, you know, these. And they'd show these things, you know, about the cockroach that ate Cincinnati and, and things like that. <laughs> or the blob. And, and, you know, when I was like a, a 10-year-old kid, you know, I'd sit there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was fascinating to watch these things. But then the sun would go down and things would get kind of creepy and and you know i my bedroom was like at the far end of our house from our living room down this long dark hallway i mean right all the way down and i'd just be looking at that hallway and i was convinced that frankenstein and the mummy and dracula and the wolfman were all waiting for me down that hallway you know my dad was smart enough to realize that his you know second son with the overactive imagination was like stalling for time when i asked for like the third drink of water before i went to bed uh, and, and he did something really wise. He said, well, uh, can I, uh, can I go tuck you in? And, oh man, that made all the difference in the world because I was convinced that my dad could whoop Frankenstein and the mummy and the Wolfman and Dracula with one arm behind his back. You know, suddenly that hallway wasn't so dark anymore. Why? Because my big old dad was right there with me. Well, the same thing is true about waiting on the Lord. You know, that good courage that we have, it doesn't mean that there aren't things out there that are going to throw us and, and put us into fear. But waiting on the Lord means the, the idea of having that good courage, uh, having the Lord strengthen your heart in the midst of all of that. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, Pastor Bo's mom, Dot, passing away. You know, that's an example of waiting on the Lord hmm. because uh, waiting on the Lord sometimes means we don't get what the Lord's doing. We don't understand, like, why, because she wasn't going to get better, and the hospice people couldn't help her pain. Why doesn't God just take her right now? Well, he didn't for eight months, and all they could do was wait on the Lord. The idea of waiting on the Lord is this idea of persevering in your faith, Mm -hmm. even when your circumstances, even when your adversaries, even when your own emotions are telling you not to. Mm -hmm. Waiting on him, trusting in him, Like Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Well, that was God's message to a group of exiles that were going to have to wait 70 years before they came back to Jerusalem. 
But God was saying, you can trust me. Just seek me right where you are. Seek the good of the city that you're in uh, because you're going to be here for a while. Uh, you know, that way you're going to be blessed, and I'm go- but I'm going to be with you every step along the way. So that's really what waiting on the Lord is all about. It's going through whatever you're going through, but realizing that God has a purpose and a plan in it, we might not fully understand, but for our part, we're going to be of good courage, let him strengthen our heart, and like David said, wait, I say on the Lord. Hmm. So that's the first part of the question. The other part? Yeah, and regarding the fact that, oh, well, if we're predestined for everything, then is there no such thing as a mistake in my life as God just decided for me to do everything, so I just go on autopilot. If you want a good debunking of that kind of attitude, read the book of Acts, because you'll see Jesus' apostles basically in three positions at any given time. First, they were obeying what God told them to do, and it put them in a situation where they could be used by him effectively and meaningfully. Second, it was in the line of fire of people who wanted to oppose the word of God and were permitted to do so for a time, but as we saw with Herod, Tetrarch an example, they were dealt with also in their own time. And the third is people who couldn't have been at the right place at the right time, so God intervened and set up circumstances, some more dramatic than others, like Philip, but others more passive, like, for example, Paul wanting to minister to Asia, being redirected to Greece, and finding an Asian woman who would give him then access to minister to more yeah. people in yeah. Asia Minor. Yeah. People who were making decisions, doing the wisest sort of things they could do with what they had, trying to honor God where they could, falling short when they did, but getting back up and remaining constantly in a state where God could use them. So if we ask the question, am I just supposed to go through life passively? Well, I hope not, because then you'll never receive salvation. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth, but into truth isn't a reception of it. It's an immersion in it. You can be surrounded by water and still drown because you don't know how to handle it. (laughs) If we ask the question then, okay, so what what is the fine line between predestination and free will? And the answer is an infinite God. When we look at things from God's perspective, we can't imagine or understand how he wouldn't have everything completely planned out and set in his divine power. But we look at things from our perspective and, even more importantly, his revelation to us And there's a constant emphasis of us having to, this day, make a decision, not to just wait for the Holy Spirit to just flip the switch in your mind and then, oh, I'm saved now. Make sure that that's understood. When it comes to whether it is predestination or free will, you had a seminary professor who made a wise observation. If the tension ever goes out on that issue, if it flips one way or the other totally, it's because the spring broke. There are both, they are rather both, taught and emphasized in Scripture, and that's something that we need to take to heart as well. We have the opportunity to pursue God today. God knew the decisions that we'd make. This day I have called you. You have the opportunity this day to choose whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When you serve the Lord, Jesus comes to you and says, you did not choose me, I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit. Both are happening at the same time, and we should recognize that, not because it makes sense to us, not because our pastor thinks so, because Scripture plainly states so. Yeah, and you know, the, one of the other follow-up question he says is, uh, you know, can we miss out on what God has for us? You know, that, that always comes up with the idea, do you have just one person, your soulmate, who you're supposed to marry? And if you miss that person, man, you've just, 
you know, and, and people worry about that sort of thing. And, and it's not just the person you're going to marry. It's just all kinds of things. Did I take the right job? Am I living in the right place? Am I go to the right church? Did I choose the right career? Uh, and, you know, people get freaked out about all that. And, 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 and I think the freaking out itself tells us something. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And uh, if we take a step back and we remember who we're dealing with and we're dealing with God, you know, one of the, the most simple, best known, but most powerful answers to that question about can I miss out on what God has for me uh, is uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. You know, the, 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 the phrase path of righteousness means exactly the right path, not the path that we would choose, but the path the shepherd chooses for us. Uh, Philip Keller, who wrote uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, talked about that line of paths of righteousness of, uh, as a shepherd, he said that, that sheep, kind of like us, we like our routines. You know, we like a little bit of a groove. If you don't believe that's true, um, be a new person and sit in somebody's seat at church. People like to sit in the same spot. They like to predict the same things are going on. And sheep are the same way, and they will go in the same route in the same place until the, the pathway not only gets completely trampled down and, and, and devoid of any good forage for the sheep to be able to eat, but it, it actually will stir up uh, like parasites and, and, uh, and diseases and things like that that the sheep can get when you know they've been there and they've been pooping in the same place and, and the whole bit. So a wise shepherd has to lead them in paths of righteousness. Sheep are just like us. They like their routine, but a wise shepherd will take the shepherd's crook and get them going over into a different place. Uh, maybe it's a strange place. It's an unfamiliar place. It's a place they wouldn't choose by themselves, but it's the right place for them. Paths of righteousness. And, uh, you know, when we understand that, uh, you know, I, I guess the answer to that question is we do see, say, for instance, the people of Israel given the opportunity to enter into the promised land. Uh, they listened to the report about the giants in the land and the walled cities and all that. And they said, forget it. We're not going to do it. Did they miss out on God's best? Yeah. Yeah, they did. Why? Because they, cho they chose to. You know, I, I think it, it, you know, where we get into trouble is that we think that somehow God is holding out on us or, or that God's got goodies, but he really doesn't want us to find him. So he hides him from us. No, God wants to bless us. He wants to give us the best that, that we can possibly experience. And if we simply say, okay, Lord, would you bless me indeed? Uh, you know, as you define blessing, uh, would you, you know, take these things that mean so much to me, like say marrying the right person or having the right career, or having the right uh, job or, or having the right life situation, living in the right place. Would you take these things and lead me in that way? Could you imagine God in heaven folding his arms and going, nah, nah, I don't think so. I, I, I kind of like watching you walk in the same old rut and get diseased and parasites and not have anything good to eat. No, he's the good shepherd. He's going to get you right where you need to go. So, you know, don't, don't worry about that. Um, God is more concerned about us receiving his blessings than sometimes we are even receiving it. And it doesn't sometimes... Isn't there a slightly mistaken idea that God has this like perfectly laid out blueprint for our lives 
and where if we miss out on one decision, then now our the trajectory of our life of our life will not be ideal. Uh, according it sounds to like the <laughs> sounds like the Marvel timeline police yeah, or yeah. something like that. I remember watching this, this preacher draw a line. This is your this is God's plan for your life, his ideal plan for your life. If you sin or you disobey, and then he drew a line coming down, and he goes, now you're going to have to spend all this time getting back to the main line, and you may never get there. And every time you sin or make a mistake, your the trajectory of your life is now off of God's original plan for your life, as if he had like some predetermined blueprint. Well, and I don't know what that says about our lives, but I know what it says about God. Uh, it says that God kind of looks and goes, oh, darn, those human beings. Look at them again. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're messing it up. They're messing up my plan. Oh, my goodness, they must be more powerful than I am because they can mess up my plans. Mm. Uh, yeah, can we delay God's best for our lives? Can we deny God's best for our lives? Sure, but you've got to be willing to do that. Mm. You know, the best way to make sure that, you know, we aren't like going down the, 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 the path and all that other stuff is to simply align our will with God's. And, and, you know, sometimes we don't even know for sure what that is. But, you know, there's a beautiful passage in Psalm 34 that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, why is he going to give you the desires of your heart? Because you're delighting yourself in him. You want what he wants. And he only wants to give us his best. And uh, sometimes his best comes in some real strange hmm. packages. I won't deny that, but he will give us his best. And, and so, you know, I think we make an error uh, when we become fatalistic. Uh, we say there, there's only, you know, one good, acceptable, and perfect will for life. I've even heard people say, well, there's God's good will, and that would be the best. There's his acceptable will, which is sort of plan B, you know, uh, and then there's his perfect will. You know, and, and if you don't get the perfect will, well, you kind of missed out. Mm. Um, and so we kind of walk around going, oh, gosh, God's got this perfect will, and I sure hope I find it because he's kind of holding out on me and, and all that. But, you know, that's a distorted view of God. He's, mm. he's the one who gives good and perfect mm. gifts. You know, he knows the plans that he has for us, mm. and he's able to accomplish them, you know, even with our fallen human uh, nature and all that stuff. I, I, I guess it's almost like the, the deal about, you know, can you lose your salvation? And people say, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And when they ask me that question, my immediate response is, no, you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Go, well, how do you know? I said, well, if you committed the unforgivable sin, you wouldn't care about it. You wouldn't have the slightest bit of conviction. The Holy Spirit's obviously convicting you about your sin. So it's very clear you haven't done that. You know, and I, and I think it's the same thing. We have to understand that God is far more interested in blessing us than we are in being blessed. He is far more interested in guiding us than we are in being gid, if you will. <laughs> you know, he's far more interested in saving us than we are even in, in being saved. And, you know, if we want to make sure that we're on that track, we're walking in paths of righteousness, the right path for us, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, mm. trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. Mm. Mm. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, we have a couple Three minutes, minutes left. left and seven questions. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, we've been getting hammered. Uh, Let's lightning round it. Minute. Yeah, so uh, how do you ground yourself in Christ when you're overthinking in a social situation? Go ahead. 
Oh, don't look at me. I'm a millennial. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do you ground yourself in Christ? How do you when... keep yourselves from overthinking situations? Yeah. How do you ground yourself in Christ and, and prevent yourself from overthinking in a social situation? Well, uh, I think maybe the most important thing is to walk in love. Uh, if I go into a social situation and I'm thinking about me or how people think about me, or, uh, you know, what's going to happen to me in this situation. Well, no wonder I feel lost. Uh, if I go into a situation and I go, okay, Jesus told me there were two things that uh, I need to do in life. Love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. and love my neighbor as myself. If I'm in a social situation and I go into it and I love the Lord. I say, okay, Lord, I just want to be used by you in this situation. It's not about me. It's about you. And then when I'm interacting with people, I love them more than I love myself and say, it's not about me, it's about you and what's best for you. How can I be a blessing to this person? How can I lighten their load? How can I be more interested in their life than trying to get them interested in mine? Um, you have those things in place, you're not going to go too far wrong. Yeah, I guess it, <clears throat> focusing on the needs of others over and above yourself. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then before we sign out, I really want to get to this one. Yari wants to know if the John Darby story is true or not, that he's the founder of the pre-tribulation rapture and dispensationalism. Uh, again, I mentioned the book, Dispensationalism Before Darby. Uh, here's, we only need one before the 1800s for that to be a false statement. So let's just uh, note these three. I'll reference them. Justin Martyr said in 150 AD that he expect Jerusalem to be rebuilt and his people to be gathered together again, and many others are of his opinion. Uh, Irenaeus mentioned that the things that were referenced in Revelation would soon indeed take place on the earth. Tertullian believed that Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, would not only descend to earth, but would, of course, about to appear in Jerusalem. You could also see the shepherd of Hermas, pseudo-Ephraim, and apocalypse of Elijah mentioning the pre-trib. Well... Thank you for joining us. We'll see you same place, same time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.